Cain's life is mentioned several times in the New Testament as a warning for believers. So this is a, sort of the second in a series that I'm doing on sons and sonship, and I'm going to talk about the rejected son today. We're going to use Cain as an example of a rejected son. Now, in the previous video, I sort of laid out for you, first of all, that many people talk about salvation, the necessity to be saved through the grace of God, through the blood of Christ, and receiving uh, forgiveness through the work of another person, that is, through the death of Christ on the cross. And once we're saved, we're always saved. Once you've been born again, you're always born again. You can never be unborn. And the next thing we talked about uh, that's brought up with regard to end times is the idea of the judgment seat of Christ, that all believers will appear before the judgment seat of Christ and will give an account for the things that we've done in the body, whether good or bad. And that's something that um, most people only talk about it in terms of rewards, the good things that you get. But there are things that may be in your life right now that you haven't um, you're just ignoring. You haven't like taken them to the Lord. You haven't dealt with them before God. And so those things will be brought up. Other things that you are actively seeking God about in your life, um, places where you fall short, places where you have some kind of sin that has a root in your life that you're wanting it to be gone, uh, if you deal with those things now, uh, they're not going to be brought up later. Now, we're forgiven for everything judicially. That is, God's justice has been satisfied through the blood of Christ. So in that sense, our sins are as far as the East is from the West. But in the practical reality of it, we're not dealing, um, God is not dealing with us like prisoners before the bar, <laughs> you know, guilty people. Now he's dealing with us as sons and as stewards and servants and Sons and stewards and servants all have to give an account for what they do and what they've done. So that is going to be at the judgment seat of Christ. And, you know, that should give us all pause for thought about, you know, how, how, will, that, uh, how will that play out? And is there something in my life right now that I really need to take care of? Because I don't want to, I don't want to be ashamed when Christ comes and I appear before the judgment seat. So the part that people don't talk about is the idea of um, believers have a place or position in the family of God. And we, we get that idea of position or place from um, the way sons appear in the Bible. And I used an example of Jacob's sons that there is a, you know, you have 12 sons. There's a firstborn. Uh, technically, the very first son who's born is entitled to the double portion of the father's inheritance. He also carries more responsibility for the people in the family. Other sons who are born later also receive an inheritance, but they don't receive the double portion. The inheritance can be forfeited or lost, like Reuben forfeited his double portion birthright because he slept with his father's concubine. And so the double portion actually eventually went to Judah and 
that's who got it. Reuben still had an inheritance, but he didn't receive the double portion. Esau sold his birthright. Very poor decision on his part, but it stood. God allowed it to be that way. Esau still received an inheritance, though, when he wanted to get that double portion and the blessing, he was rejected. He could not get that back again. So we talked a little bit about how God has sons and he's dealing with us as sons. If you're a firstborn son, you will have um, the ability to rule and reign with Christ. We don't know exactly what that looks like or exactly how that will play out. We can have some guesses from what we read in the Bible. But from my understanding of the goodness of God and the grace of God in my life, what we can expect will far exceed anything that we could imagine here now. So the position of honor and the, um, the idea of having things of our own that we're able to administrate is a, um, I, I hope that makes you excited. And for me, the real um, blessed thing that I'm looking forward to is the whole idea of being part of an inner circle that we're, I'll be closer to Christ, that I will have his ear and he has mine and that we're going to be part of this group. And we see this group in Revelation chapter 5 where Christ is seated in the midst of the 24 elders. He's one of them. And I think in that case in Revelation 5, he is like instructing or discipling the other elders of which he is one. He is a um, we are joint heirs with Christ. He is the eldest, but we still participate in this firstborn. So when the children of Israel were wandering in the wilderness, there were a lot of things that um, happened to that nation that are prophetic, prophetic of Christ and his first coming, as well as prophetic of how things are going to be at his second coming. So for example, the elders that Moses hung out with the people that the spirit of God of Moses, which was the spirit of God, was placed on the 70 elders. These were his associates. These were his helpers. They were an inner circle. And there was a trumpet blast that sounded just for the elders. So the elders would come when they heard this blast and nobody else would because this wasn't a call for them. And I think this is kind of a type too of how the elders are going to be called into heaven before other people. They will have their own signal and they will uh, be um, taken to where Christ is in the throne room of God um, at, a, at a time when nobody else is. It's just the, just the kings and priests, the elders. So the firstborn are something that we see throughout the Bible throughout the scriptures and we see it right away in Genesis chapter 4 when Adam and his wife have their first child and their son Cain is born to them. And actually Adam was a son of God too according to the genealogy we see in Luke. He was a son of God in that you know God's image was placed in Adam. He was formed and created after the image of God, and sons bear the image of their fathers. So this whole idea of firstborn, of sonship, goes from the beginning of the Bible all the way through, and it's something that plays into the end times. Even though it is highly ignored, it is never talked about that I've heard. Uh, it's 
uh, with regard to the rapture or you know people going into heaven it's not sons being brought to glory it's always about the bride and believe me the bride is not what's going to be raptured or who's going to be raptured it's individual sons and they will be raptured according to their standing in in the family okay and you can have a lot of firstborns a lot of other sons and there can also be what we're going to look at today the rejected sons remember firstborns are trained they are trained by the Holy Spirit if you want to learn more about that I have some links to other videos in the description box I also have a, a link to the show notes that I'm going to be uh, using today also the other sons they're the ones they're not firstborn but they're still sons they're going to have an inheritance and um, they receive either limited or no training or it's kind of after the fact <laughs> so it's sort of like um, there there will be people who will be martyred for example by the beast and they weren't people who qualified to go in the very first rapture but through their martyrdom they can sort of recoup what they lost in terms of that firstborn status um, rejected sons are really they're the wicked people they're apostates and they follow the way of Cain according to what Jude tells us this word way here is just a path there is a path that Cain is on or Cain was on and he followed that path and it led to his destruction and and basically his being removed from the presence of God we're going to look at all of that in this video today he's also the son who knew better he should he should have known better he did know better but he chose not to not to do what he knew and understood he went his own way and um, with very sad consequences so let's take a look at uh, Genesis 4 I'm going to read verses 1 through 7 and then we're going to talk a bit about this now Adam knew his Eve his wife and she conceived and bore Cain saying I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord and again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. All right, so Adam and Eve have a son. The oldest son's name is Cain. And then after Cain comes Abel. Now, God had already promised Adam and Eve that uh, there would be a son, um, part of, uh, one of the seed of the woman, who would uh, remove the, basically the curse that was placed on the earth. That's the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And I think in many ways Eve thought that the birth of Cain would be that man. Okay, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord, that this son would be the one to do that. And then she had another son after that, and that was Abel. 
And no doubt we're skipping over a bunch of years and then we get to the place where they're adults and they each have their own occupation. Uh, remember, God placed a curse not on man, but on the ground that man came from. So the ground was cursed and it would bear thorns and thistles and men would only be able to get fruit food from the ground by the sweat of their brow. So a lot of people say that God placed a curse on on men and women, but he didn't. He placed a curse on the ground and then he increased the suffering of the woman in childbirth. So Cain basically was a farmer. <laughs> he, he tilled the ground. But God, remember, he'd cursed the ground. And so when Cain is working in the ground, he's having to battle thorns and thistles. And it's by the sweat of his brow that Cain was actually able to um, have any kind of productivity from the earth. And when the time came for him to bring an offering, and I think the offering was very specific, I think he knew what kind of offering he was supposed to bring, but he brought the plants that he'd raised or the fruit of the plants that he'd raised, things that he had obtained through the cursed ground uh, through his uh, sweat and toil and labor. The reason why I say Cain should have known what kind of offering or what kind of sacrifice to bring is because back in the garden we have this hint at a lamb or a, an animal being slain so that God could provide clothing or covering, which is the same word as atonement. So remember how they had tried to cover their shame using fig leaves, which vegetation, and God gave them skins to wear. And people don't wear a live animal. Some animal died to make those skins for Adam and Eve. So the covering or the atonement was supplied for Adam and Eve through the death or sacrifice of an innocent lamb. I think in this case. So the, the type was already kind of established by the time we even have Cain and Abel bringing sacrifices. And the whole idea of bringing a sacrifice, where did that come from? Well, I'm sure that there was instruction that this act of ritual, uh, the sacrifice of an innocent and the shedding of blood of, the, of an innocent lamb would cover over or atone for the sins of people. So this was something that has that carried on. Now, Cain's brother, Abel, his younger brother, whose name, by the way, means breath, vanity, or emptiness. It's kind of a sad name, and you kind of wonder um, why he was named that, except for maybe the fact that the world had become very vain and empty and, you know, looked pretty bleak when uh, Adam and Eve named him. But he was Cain's younger brother, and he was a shepherd and he didn't till the ground so he didn't really have to deal with thorns and thistles he wasn't bringing uh, forth anything by the sweat of his labors he wasn't battling thorns and thistles or the curse of the ground he was shepherding animals and sheep in particular so when it came time to bring a, a sacrifice or an offering he actually brought the first fruits of the animals that he loved and tended. This was all before the whole sacrificial system that Moses was given while they were in the wilderness. So the principles for that system or the foundation for it was actually laid, you know, way, way back 
with Adam and Eve and then continued on with Cain and Abel. So Abel was aware, I'm sure, that he needed to bring a blood sacrifice, uh, an innocent animal, for the atonement. He brought the firstborn from his flock. And again, this is a, a whole idea of, of the firstborn belonging to God in a special way of being uh, sort of the first fruits of this flock. And a lot of concepts that we read about later in the Bible are actually right here in this um, passage in Genesis chapter 4. This understanding of first fruits and firstborn, Abel would have realized, and he would have known, and so would have Cain, he'd have known that Cain was the heir apparent. He was the one through whom the promise of Messiah would come. He was the one that was double portion belonged to, that, that he was the going to be the uh, new leader of the family once Adam died. So this was something, Cain had a position of honor in the family that goes along with the whole idea of an heir apparent or someone who is going to be the leader of, of the tribe. So basically the story of Cain and Abel offers us kind of two examples of the way that people come to God. Uh, there are people who go the way of Christ to um, who believe in a substitutionary atonement that the death of an innocent uh, lamb can actually atone for or cover over our sins. And that's, of course, Christ was the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. That was Abel's understanding. Now, Cain, rather than acquiring uh, a lamb or purchasing a lamb from his brother, chose to bring his works, the fruit of the sweat of his brow, and offer that to God. And at some level, you think, well, that was, you know, a lot of effort on Cain's part to have to deal with the thorns and thistles and deal with all of that and, you know, the sweat of his brow and then off, you know, take this stuff that he worked really hard for and bring it to God. But that isn't what God wanted. He did not want the fruit of the curse, <laughs> the, the cursed ground. He didn't want that. And he didn't want the fruit of man's works. What he wanted was faith in a sacrifice that would be made down the line. Okay, the picture of Christ as the Lamb of God. So the scriptures tell us that God did not have regard for Cain's sacrifice. He did have regard for Abel's sacrifice. The Lord uh, was pleased with what Abel offered, but he wasn't happy with what Cain brought. And apparently the Lord was still fellowshipping with people in kind of a face-to-face -face way, uh, even after the fall. It was possible for Cain and for Abel, Adam and Eve, to have access to the presence of God somewhere outside the Garden of Eden. So the Lord was pleased with Abel's offering, but he wasn't pleased with Cain's. And Cain was angry. He was really angry, and he was very jealous of God's regard for Abel. And, of course, this is sort of a, a typical thing that the people who believe in working really hard and doing the works of the law to have a right standing with God are always angry <laughs> or um, jealous of people who have a right standing with God apart from works. The law is always opposed to the things of the Spirit. And God could see where this was heading with Cain. He could see what the deal was, and he took the initiative to actually warn and encourage Cain to sort of 
like do the right thing. And what he said was that if Cain did well, that he would be accepted. And doing well means, in this case, doing the right thing. That if Cain did the right thing, uh, he would be accepted. And, in fact, God told Cain that if he didn't do the right thing, which in this case was offering up an acceptable sacrifice by faith, not through works of the flesh, but by faith, that he would be accepted. But Cain was so upset, and God told him, look, if you don't have mastery over this, if you don't get a hold of this and, and do what's right, sin is going to have dominion over you. It's going to master you. And by the way, this passage in Genesis chapter 4 is the very first place in the Bible where we read about sin. It's the first time we see sin actually mentioned. That sin is crouching at the door and its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So what we're hearing here is that God was saying, look, you need to take authority over that area of sin in your life. You need to do the right thing. Uh, the only way to have mastery over sin for Cain was to override this intense jealousy and anger, swallow his pride, get a lamb from his brother, and offer the sacrifice of somebody else's labor. Well, this proved to be more than Cain was willing to do, and as we'll see here, it was his undoing. So let's go back to Genesis 4. And Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you work the ground, it will no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden, and I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. And then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. And then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And when he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. All right, so this is basically the story of Cain. And we're going to see the consequences of this sin that was couching at the door. Uh, ready to devour Cain. It was going to make a mess of everything in Cain's life. He needed to get, um, he needed to get a grip, and he needed to, to do the right thing. But when Cain refused to take to heart and act um, according to the things the Lord had told him to do, uh, his anger only grew. It just got worse and worse till one day he invited his brother Abel to come out to the field, and of course the field is probably um, his field. Cain's land, and while on Cain's turf, Cain slew his brother Abel. This was the very first recorded death in the Bible. It was the very first um, murder. 
So Cain murdered his brother in cold blood. The Lord knew what he'd done. He confronted him. And it was at that point then that God basically said, look, there's consequences for that behavior. You, you were warned. You were told how to make things right. You were told that you needed to be aware of this sin thing and you didn't take care of it. And this is what happened. You, it led you to murder. So here's the consequences that Cain would have to suffer. The first thing is he would no longer have access to the ground to till it. He wouldn't have a land inheritance. Abel's blood crying from the ground cursed Cain. It cursed the ground. It cursed Cain's relationship with the earth. And Cain was cursed to be driven from the ground, which was kind of unthinkable for somebody who had invested so much time and energy in growing crops in this field that he had. The second thing was that Cain was destined to become a fugitive and a wanderer, that he wouldn't have a home. He wouldn't have a place. There would be no place that he would say, this is mine. This is my home. This is where I work. This is you know, where my family lives. He would not have a place. He would basically be a man without a country, a homeless person, a vagrant, a vagabond. And he was afraid that people would see that. Look, here's a guy. He's sort of without a place. Let's just, you know, kill him. And uh, God said, no, I'll put a mark on you so that won't happen. And in some ways, I think Cain would have rather died than had lived his life in wandering. But the third thing was perhaps the worst thing that Cain would no longer have access to God. He said, and from your face I shall be hidden. Up until this point in time, Cain had a relationship with, with God. He had a face-to-face -face relationship with God. And God said, look, you're, you're out of here. You're, you're gone. No more land. No more, you know, no more home. You're, you're gone. And, you know, this is the last time, basically, we're going to see each other. So when Cain set out to murder his brother, he had no idea of the devastating consequences that that behavior would have, including banishment from the very presence of God. So the scriptures tell us this sad consequence, and uh, it says, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod. So Cain was banished from God's presence. He'd never see the Lord again. He became a wanderer, and he dwelt in the land of wandering, which is what Nod means. It means uh, wandering. And Cain's life is mentioned several times in the New Testament as a warning for believers. And remember, these admonitions are not for non-believers. Non-believers are not sons. Okay, they're you know, create uh, children of God in the sense that they are God's creation, but they are not sons. And this is a warning to the sons of God, of which you and I are sons, hopefully. Cain was a firstborn. He stood to inherit the double portion. He was um, going to have the blessing. He could have been in the lineage of the Messiah. But Cain lost everything when he became enraged and jealous of Abel's favor with God and murdered his brother, refused to take authority over that uh, sin that was couching at the door. 
he was unwilling to humble himself and go to his brother for a lamb to offer as an acceptable sacrifice, he lost everything. And even worse, he lost his face-to-face -face relationship with God. God's judgment on Cain did not result in Cain's death, but something that in Cain's mind was worse than death, that he would live in the land of wandering away from the presence of the Lord, drifting sort of forever without a true home. Now Cain's birthright and blessing would go to another brother who would yet be born because Abel was dead and Cain was gone. Uh, this is Seth, and Seth became the new heir through whom would come the Messiah. And we can read about that in Genesis 4, 21 through 26. So the New Testament uses Cain as a type of son who is rejected and sent away because of his behavior. And Jude refers to believers who fall away from the Lord. And these people do not follow after the Spirit, but follow their own lusts and desires. They allow themselves to think evil thoughts about their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And they use God's people for personal gain. And in the end, these people will be destroyed because of their deeds. And Jude refers to this as the way of Cain. Uh, Jude verses... 10 and 11. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way, or the road or path, of Cain, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. And um, Korah and Balaam are two other negative examples that we'll look at somewhere down the road. And then 1 John 3, uh, 12 says this, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. So you can compare this to the sacrifices. There was an evil sacrifice and a righteous sacrifice. There was an unrighteous sacrifice and a righteous one. Hebrews 11.4, we read more about this. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, and God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So Abel is one of these um, Old Testament people that's in that Hebrews Hall of Fame of Faith who is going to be part of the bride and body of Christ who will live in the New Jerusalem with all of us. He was a person of faith. He looked forward to the cross, to the lamb who would be slain. And because he offered his sacrifice in faith, he was commended as being righteous. And God accepted Abel's gift because it was done in faith. But Cain was not a righteous man, and he did not live in this faith that his brother had. He chose to offer an unacceptable sacrifice, the fruit of his own labors, which was just pride. And hidden underneath that sacrifice was the idea that through his own efforts, he could overcome the curse God placed on the ground. So the story of Cain shows us that there is this third destiny. 
Okay, you can be a firstborn and get the full inheritance. You can be one of these other sons who receives a limited or a small inheritance um, proportionate with their faithfulness or lack of faithfulness. And then there is this third person, the, a rejected son. And basically these are wicked or apostate people and they truly are. It's not just that they're faithless, it's their anti-faith. It's not that they don't have faith, it's that they, they're actually actively opposed to the things that have to do with faith. So this next part of this story is kind of a thought that occurred to me while I was studying this and pondering on the things that I was reading. And Genesis 6, we have the genealogy of Adam through his son Seth. And um, goes up through Noah and his sons. So there's this long genealogy. And the phrase, and he died, occurs over and over again. We're told that Adam had sons and whatever, and he died. And Seth had sons and daughters or whatever, and he died. And we, that phrase is used um, throughout the genealogy, and he died. Whenever you see repetition, it's meant kind of for emphasis. It's not just that, you know, he's dying, you know, or that he died because we assume everybody's going to die one day, but the um, the curse that if you ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you would die, that death would enter the world. Well, um, death is progressing here. So this is a very interesting um, phrase, and I think what's most interesting with regard to Cain is that we never have a record of Cain dying. He has a genealogy that's in um, chapter 4 and we never read that Cain died. Now of course we know he did die but there is something here that's very similar to another Old Testament character called Melchizedek and in the New Testament um, when the writer of Hebrews talks about Melchizedek. He says that here's somebody who doesn't have a genealogy, neither father nor mother nor, you know, length of days or end of years. You know, he continues on, you know, like the Son of God. So there's this idea that this human person actually is a type of someone who doesn't die because there's no record of his death. Okay, so there is something that is sort of the the mirror side of that, the dark side, you know, of the negative side of someone who is not recorded as having died. In other words, that what is going to be happening with Cain is something that's going to continue on, that there isn't going to be any end to it. Uh, was banished from the presence of the Lord. There's no record. It doesn't say, and he died. It just leaves you with this kind of eternal banishment from the presence of the Lord in the land of wandering. So in the last days, there's going to be believers, especially the last days. This has no doubt occurred throughout church history and actually throughout the history of the world. There's people who fall away from the faith. Okay? Balaam and Korah are two Old Testament people who are types of this. Okay, so this was obviously going on long before the New Testament or even the present days. But in the end times, we're told that this is going to pick up. There's going to be more people who walk away from the faith. And not only do they just walk away, but they lead other people to walk away. They help other people to um, believe things that are wrong. They themselves are deceived through 
deception, satanic, demonic deception, and that sort of energizes them. And then they communicate that to other people and encourage new believers or weak believers that it's okay to sin. So this is this is really sad. And even though these people are saved, and, and we know they're saved from uh, passages that I read in the video from uh, that's just before this, uh, part one, they're not going to have an inheritance in the holy city. They're not going to have an eternal inheritance. They're like Cain, outside of the holy city in a place called outer darkness. And we read about this in Revelation 22, verses 14 and 15. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers, the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. We also are, know that believers who follow the way of Cain are compared to wandering stars, um, doomed to forever wander in eternity without a home, just like Cain. And just like Cain's death was never recorded, neither will these unsanctified or unholy individuals die um, in the second death, okay, the lake of fire. Instead, they'll wander forever outside the city of light, the New Jerusalem, homeless vagabonds condemned to outer darkness. So because the theological emphasis of our day, and it's sort of been going on basically since the Reformation for the last 500 years or so, um, the emphasis is on salvation by grace through faith, and it's not on sanctification. Christians will have arguments, Calvinists versus the Armenians, you know, the once saved, always saved, and you can lose your salvation camps. And so we, what we've done is we've just skipped over the whole idea of the inheritance, the possibility even of being forever saved from the lake of fire, and yet losing your inheritance, or even worse, that if you actually abandon, walk away, follow another path, except for, you know... In, not the path of the Lord, that's possible to be banished forever from the presence of God, um, but you're not going to be in the lake of fire. So the promise of ruling and reigning with Christ, the promised inheritance, belongs to every Christian. Okay, Every Christian has been promised um, the highest level of honor that a person can receive. And it's guaranteed by God from his side of the box to everyone who walks according to the Spirit. People who are willing to submit to training, who are willing to suffer so that they could be glorified. And overcoming believers will receive everything that God has promised them. But should they live in an unworthy manner, they might lose the double portion they'll lose the honor. They will have still have something. They'll have an inheritance, but they will not have the double portion. If they turn away from Christ and abandon the faith altogether and deliberately walk away, having been enlightened, the scriptures say, and possessing the seal of the Holy Spirit, they're still not going to be damned. They're not going to the lake of fire. They don't lose their salvation, even though they're apostate. They still belong to Christ. They'll never experience the wrath of God. However, like Cain, they may be driven from his presence and be a vagabond and fugitive in eternity. And I have to tell you, this is a hard doctrine. Very hard doctrine. It's one that's not being taught in the churches, even though it's clearly taught in the Bible 
both directly in the New Testament and in the form of types and shadows in the Old Testament. Okay, and there's one more example of wandering, and that is the Israelites. Okay, the Israelites were in the land of Egypt. They were in bondage, which is a picture of our bondage to sin and Satan. Pharaoh is a type of Satan. Egypt's a picture of this world. When they put the um, blood of the innocent lamb over the doorposts of their home, the death angel passed over and the firstborn was spared. The firstborn who was spared was the one who was going to inherit in the promised land. So God performed all kinds of plagues and miracles, basically, I think, to not only take dominion over um, the you know, Pharaoh and all the gods of Egypt, but also to show the Israelites that he was on their side, that he had a plan for them, that he was powerful and he could make this plan happen. So they were led out by Moses. They got backed up against the Red Sea. And it was at that time then that they were able to pass through the Red Sea. It says they were baptized in the cloud and in the sea and all were baptized into Moses and in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food. That was manna. And I'm quoting from a passage here in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 13, where Paul talks about the Israelites are an example for us. Basically, the blood of the lamb covered them. They were led out of Egypt. Satan no longer had dominion over them. But when they got into the wilderness and at the first sign of trouble, they started complaining. Their complaining provoked the Lord. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. And here is the encouraging part of this passage. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. In other words, there is nothing that is coming your way or has come your way that is like not a common thing. And God is going to use this thing in your life. He's faithful and he's going to provide the way of escape so that you can endure it. So just this knowledge that you're not alone in this and you're you're in good company. This is something that, you know, has been a part of everyone's life since um, the beginning of time. But what happened was the Israelites, when they were grumbling and complaining and um, indulging in sexual immorality and so on, that they lost their inheritance. They ended up having to wander in the in the wilderness. Okay, they were wanderers. That the curse of God is basically that people become wanderers. And this is what he told the Jews. Look, if you guys 
um, you know, once they came into the land, he said, look, you, you need to obey my commands. You need to please me and so on. And if you don't, the consequences are that you're going to be forced out of your land and dispersed among the nations. Okay. And the phrase wandering Jew, ha there's a, there's a reason for it that these are people who had a place, they lost the place, but in God's economy and by his grace, they are once again going to have a place back in their land, which they're already there in, in unbelief. They're not there in belief yet. But the fact that there is an Israel that, you know, we are in the end times that God has a plan for Israel means that there is a promise of restoration for the Jews and there is the promise of a an earthly inheritance that they'll have, and that'll be during the millennium. So you can see that these are themes that run throughout Scripture, you know, and we need to be able to take them and run them all the way through to the end and apply them to our own lives. A lot of times I hear people say, and I've said this myself, well, if I were them and I was wandering in the wilderness and I'd seen God perform all those miracles, well, I wouldn't grumble. <laughs> if he gave me manna every day, I, well, I wouldn't complain. Well, the fact is, is that human nature is what it is. And for most people, yes, they would complain. And yes, these um, signs and miracles and all these things do not create in people faith. Faith is created when we realize that God is a loving God and that he has promised that he'll be with us and provide for us. Our faith is based on a person and our relationship with him, not on a set of circumstances. That if the circumstances are good, I'll have faith, or if they're bad, I won't. So this theme of the inheritance of the firstborn, the need for faithfulness, all of these are themes that run from Genesis to Revelation. Okay, so here's the encouraging word. And by the way, most people who are watching this video um, are not rejected sons, okay? They, a rejected son is someone who has really decided that they're going to be not live by faith, that they've decided they're going to be contrary and walk contrary to God. It's an investment in being contrary and rebellious. That That's the direction that they're putting their energy into is outright rebellion. And if anyone has fallen away from faith in God and has become rebellious, there still is an opportunity today for repentance and restoration. And you can actually, you can get it all back. You can get it all back. Today is, is a day when you can do that. The writer of Hebrews says this, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation, and I said, They always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. And as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end.
So we can share in Christ, that is, we're going to partake or participate as co-heirs with Christ if we hold our confidence firm to the end. So the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today is a good day not just to be saved. Today is a good day to repent of any sin, rebellion, active, um, you know, anything in your life that is holding you back from being wholehearted and full-hearted walking with the Lord. And one of the ways you can tell if you are in um, a place of, you know, where you're enrolled in the class of, of the School of Holy Spirit Obedience is, is how you treat other people. You know, do you pray for people who persecute you? Do you love people? Are you willing to, um, you know, be patient? Do you pray for others? Um, are you willing to humble yourself and take the low position? Are you willing to be a servant? Are you willing to um, operate in um, obscurity? And if those things are true, and especially if it's not your natural tendency to do those things or be that way, you can be pretty sure that the Holy Spirit is at work in you. And even if you can see even a small victory in your life, you know that the Holy Spirit is working in your life. You're, you're in class and you're doing a good job. So I hope this video has been informative and encouraging, and I want to use it as an exhortation for people to examine their life and see if they're really in the faith and you know if you really do have the Holy Spirit you really are firstborn you really are a son of God and uh, those are the kinds of things that you can do through prayer so uh, dear father I pray for everyone watching this video today I pray Lord that your touch your hand your voice would be evident in their life I pray that as they draw near to you that you would draw near to them and I pray, Lord, that every desire of their spirit-filled heart would come alive and that they would uh, see the fulfillment of everything they've ever desired and more because they know the one who is the author of everything. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray you will bless this, um, this little Bible study today in your name. Amen. So leave a comment. We'll see you on another video. Till then, have a blessed day.